1: celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, One Song at a Time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining me for the first time on the show from the Freewheeling Podcast,
0: Pete Piazza. Hello, Pete. Hey, Rob. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on.
1: I'm doing great. I'm glad to have you here. Uh, We're here to talk about Dear Landlord, uh, a song from 1967's John Wesley Harding, an album that I think we've only touched on once before, which is uh, when we did an episode on uh, All Along the Watchtower, which is, of course, by far the most famous song from that record. But Dear Landlord is a terrific song, and there's a lot to say about it. Before we get to that, uh, as I typically do when I have a new guest, uh, like Pete, what's your history with Bob Dylan? How did you
0: come to the music? Right. So I... Uh, approximately 10 years ago I at that point in my life I was into a lot of standards and kind of swing jazz Frank Sinatra Dean Martin and I wasn't really into a lot of 60s or 70s music but I had a friend who had a copy of the free wheel and Bob Dylan and I had always heard of him from my parents but (laughs) I I don't think I actually ever heard a song of his or I wouldn't have recognized it if I did at the time I probably heard a cover either by Rod Stewart or, you know, one of the other contemporary artists of the time. And uh, so he let me borrow that, and I played it, I think, nonstop for two days. Um, obviously, wow. it opened with, with Blowing in the Wind, and, and that was quite capturing. And uh, and then it led to... The song that really got me, I think, was Girl from the North Country, mm. which is, a, I think, an understated... Um, you know, one of the most beautiful love songs probably he ever did, but it's also has that, um, you know, that feeling of don't think twice, it's all right, where, you know, he, uh, well, anyway, I won't go too much into it. On this. <laughs> we're, not, we're not talking about that song, but uh, just just the album as a whole really, re- really captured my interest. And then from there, it was the, from the Newport Folk Festival, when I saw his song, um, Mr. Tambourine Man, when he played it in 1964. And I just thought that it was just the poetry and everything about it was Just uh, very inspiring and captivating.
1: Well, if you're going to start somewhere, Freewheeling is a good album to start with. I mean, that's... He, he still returns to that album in, in live performances to this day. I mean, that record is 50 years old, more than 50 right. years old at this point, and he's still playing songs off of it. So, I mean, if you're going to start somewhere, that's a, it's a good place to start.
0: Yeah, that was, for me, that was it. And it was obviously sort of the beginning. I know he had an album before that. Right. But that was what kicked it off. And I tried to go in uh, chronological order from there. It didn't work out that way, but I tried. Um, obviously, I went through all, I burned through all the 60s stuff in no time. Uh, because that's the most iconic and certainly for him, arguably the most important work he's done. But I, I've, I'm definitely into the, the later material as well, and I think it's underappreciated. I was about to ask you, you talked about that you were into like standards and stuff, so what do you think
1: of these last couple of records he's been doing where he's been singing all the standards?
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, to be, to be honest, I, and I feel bad saying this as an <laughs> avid, dylan listener but i haven't given them too much attention okay okay. i did appreciate shadows in the night um i liked that lucky old son and a few other ones he did um i'm a a fool to want you but overall if i'm going to listen to that it's it's got to be frank or sammy davis (laughs) or the, the, the guys that really really uh made that that music shine i mean dylan's vocal i'm sure as you know now is uh, his vocal range isn't what it used to be Um, so it it, at times i find it difficult to get through some of those songs but Mm -hmm. you know i i was excited when when he announced he was going to do it but i i don't Go to those albums like I do with the other ones. Right.
1: Well, I think Bob would probably agree with you about if you're going to listen to the songs, you listen to the Frank Sinatra versions. I think I think Bob, right. Bob himself would, would would say that that's the that's the way to do it. So, uh, yeah, I'm well, I'm kind of on the same page with you, and I, I feel like like a lot of Dylan work, I'll return to it later on, maybe at some point. So it'll be there for me right. when I'm ready. You know, I have all the records I'm ready to go. But all right, well, excellent. We said we're here to talk about "Dear Landlord," which is from 1967's John Wesley Harding. Um, We talked about this briefly on the uh, All Along the Watchtower episode, where the history of the the recording of this album, because this album stands pretty unique in the the history of Bob Dylan, who has never had an easy time in the recording studio. He's always been very sort of uncomfortable, unwilling to work on things more than a couple takes at a time. After that, he gets sort of disinterested and fades out. And there's been a lot of great material over the years that have been lost. Uh, because of that, which is now why we have, you know, 13 volumes of the bootleg right. series at this point. But uh, strangely enough, John Wesley Harding seemed to come together almost, uh, I don't want to say out of magic, because it's, it's, it, that undercuts the hard work that I'm sure Dylan put into it, but it seemed to come to Dylan pretty easily. Uh, he wrote all the songs in a very brief period of time, I think over just a couple of weeks while he was living up in Woodstock. He went in, rec- re- got together with the musicians Kenny buttry on drums and Charlie McCoy on bass and a couple others, and produced the entire album in, I think, two or three afternoons with no out, virtually no outtakes. I think there's maybe an alternate version of Watchtower and an alternate version of one or two of the other songs and a couple of false starts. But that was it. He basically went in, cut what he needed for the record and got out. And the whole thing was done. Uh, and, and he's never been able to kind of get back to that sort of simplicity of purpose. Uh, and and, and uh, I think Clinton Halen mentions in one of his books about, like, where he didn't let the process get in the way. I mean, maybe it was the fact that he had just come off of doing a bunch of the basement tape stuff with the band. And he had kind of gotten into that relaxing vibe. And, and that sort of carried over into the John Wesley Harding songs, but he's never been able to really get that sense where he just went in, recorded all the songs he needed, and got out, and there was no mussing, no fussing. Apparently, at some point, he did go to Robbie Robertson and asked if the band would consider adding some electronic instrumentation to these songs, and Robertson according to him, listened to them and said, no, no, they're, they're fine the way they are. And that there, there went the album, you know, that was it.
0: Yeah. No, uh, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that about Robbie Robertson, obviously. And I know you've given context to this album in other episodes with all along the watchtower and, um, one of the other songs you did. And, And it's certainly comes at the same period of time that he did the basement tapes. I think it was shortly after, um, I think basement tapes, Concluded in October of 67, and he recorded this album, I think, in, sometime in the autumn. Um, I know it wasn't released till I think, December or January. But definitely, I think the basement tapes inspired the style of music that kind of laid back country, uh, blues, folk, kind of a fusion of all all three of those. And I think it was a lot more relaxing for him to do this album because he could Kind of do it at his own pace um, as opposed to something like when he did Highway 61. I heard it was very chaotic in the studio when he did that. Mm-hmm. But with the way Dylan's mind works and how rapid his thoughts are and, and how quickly he can pen a tune, I think um, this for him was, was very easygoing and uh, pretty straightforward process for him. So I And I think that definitely freed up his mind to to focus more on the material um i I don't know if you've heard of the him stating that with this album you know there's no line it's there 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 are no filler lines nothing Mm -hmm. you can put your hole through or put a hole through um each each line has something to it as opposed to basement tapes i mean a lot of that stuff is (laughs) him him just you know on the spot impromptu rambling yeah, um, a lot of a lot of banging
1: around uh, the right. you know, stuff on that. Yeah, these all except for uh, the ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. All the songs on this record are only three verses long, uh, incredibly short and to the point. It's a "Dear Landlord" stands a little unique in that it's piano-driven. Most of the other songs are not, and it opens up with a, a the, you hear Dylan playing the piano coming in, and it's it's I love his vocal though the, on this, and it opens it's, up with. A,
0: it's, it's great. Yeah, I was just gonna say that it's Yeah, vocal on this is, is phenomenal.
1: Yeah, it opens up with him singing, Dear Landlord and he really stretches it out. It's like Dear right. Landlord <laughs> I really gets a lot of a lot of I'm uh, glad you did that, not yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to embarrass myself here on the show. Yeah. He sings Dear Landlord, please don't put a price on my soul. My burden is heavy, my dreams are beyond control. When that steamboat whistle blows, I'm gonna give you all I got to give, and I do hope you receive it well depending on the way that you feel that you live. And he goes back to, Dear Landlord, please heed these words that I speak. I know you have suffered much, but in this you are not so unique. All of us at times, we might work too hard to have it too fast and too much. And anyone can fill fill his life up with things that he can see, but he just cannot touch. And then the song wraps up with, Dear Landlord, please don't dismiss my case. I'm not about to argue. I'm not about to move to no other place. Now each of us have, has his own special gift, and you know this was meant to be true. And if you don't underestimate me, underestimate me. I won't underestimate you.
0: And that's it. That's the whole song. A very right. Directed. And, and song. there's a lot. There's a lot in there. I don't know how oh, yeah. how deep you want to get into in, interpreting this um, these lyrics, but there you could go uh, several different ways with this. From you know, there's been interpretations about Albert Grossman. And about God and about the mind and the body. Um, and I think with with Dylan, I, I read somewhere A.J. Weberman, the you know infamous Dylanologist, mm. uh, once <laughs> said that he thought this song was about him. Uh, he confronted. He conf- yeah, he confronted Dylan about it. I think Albert. And, I think.
1: Uh, I think. Uh, I think that guy AJ Weberman goes through his life thinking everything is about him.
0: Right, right, right. He, he thinks every song is a reference to heroin, too. Yeah, because uh, yeah. he thinks Bob's a big junkie. But yeah, he thought this was about him, and when he confronted Dylan about it, um, Dil, there, there was something mentioned about Albert Grossman, and Dylan said he didn't th- think it was all the way for Albert Grossman, but after people pointed it out, he said maybe it could have been. So, I think. My my theory behind this is it truly was more um, related to Albert Grossman and his relationship with him, just based on some of the lines he says in here. Um, obviously, at the time too, he was running a cottage from Albert Grossman, so he right. he literally was his landlord at the time <laughs> at the time that he wrote this. Um, and I also read he he wrote it on a train too. I don't know how accurate that is, but I just I think it's. It's simplistic in the carefree piano riff throughout it, and uh, but I just think Dylan's vocals on this are are s- superb, just the way he drags out some of the notes and his inflections throughout the song.
1: Yeah, the the, ple- uh, the pleading tone that he gets
0: right. it fits the lyrics perfectly. Right, and it's it's interesting too. I read a, a this gentleman named Bob Weir Wire. He has a whole page on. Bob Dylan songs. He does song analysis. And uh, he wrote that the song itself is made up of the speaker's words to God as he attempts to force God into keeping his side of the bargain while finding excuses for reneging on his own side of it. So I thought that was interesting Um, because you get this throughout the song. He's requesting something from the landlord, some sort of leniency from him. But at the same time, he's making up excuses on why he's not you know, living up to his side of the bargain, right. whether it be his burden, his burdens too heavy or his dreams are beyond his control. Um, he's kind of deflecting the blame. And, uh, I thought that was interesting how he does that. It's, because the song's almost written like a letter to the landlord. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Albert... Or, or a conversation, I guess. Right, could be.
1: yeah. I mean, you mentioned Albert Grossman, and that was one of the reasons why when you said this was one of the songs you might want to talk about, I jumped at this one because so far, even though we're 60 episodes in, we haven't had a chance to talk about Albert Grossman yet, which is kind of amazing. It just hasn't come up. And for those of you listening who aren't familiar with who that is, uh, he figures pretty large into the early years of Bob Dylan's career. He was Bob Dylan's manager... Right from basically 1962 all the way until 69. But of course, by the time Dylan had you know, uh, started writing songs like Blown in the Wind and Times Era Changing, he didn't even really need a manager anymore. Because uh, right. he was able to, uh, Dylan's notoriety was, was going to open all the doors for him that a manager didn't need now. Uh, if you want to see Albert Grossman at work, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: you can you can watch the movie Don't Look Back, which is a documentary of Dylan's uh, uh, tour in England in the in 1965. And we see how hard-charging Albert Grossman was as a manager. I mean, he manages to uh, manages talk a, a British promoter into basically forking over a lot more money for Dylan than the guy was comfortable with. And uh, Grossman was a huge figure in the folk scene. He managed Peter, Paul, and Mary and a lot of other big-name acts, and he really was kind of a, a, a real rough-and-tumble guy, I mean, and, and really hard-charging, and pushed his way sort of past what back then was considered sort of maybe polite, uh, the way people were interact with one another, but, but nevertheless, Grossman got for his clients what he thought they deserved. And by the time 67 rolled around, Grossman had owned a large chunk of Dylan's songwriting, in terms of the royalties, And the idea that some people have said behind this song is that this is Dylan who no longer needs Albert Grossman sort of saying, hey, you know, free me from this bondage. You know, I'm still owing you money on work that I'm doing, but you basically haven't done anything for me in a long time. Yes, he was renting a cottage, but that's probably more of a matter of convenience, not because Dylan couldn't afford it. And so, and and yes, as you mentioned, Dylan has gone on and said that Grossman is not the subject, but it could be one of those things like a lot of Dylan songs where – He's not the subject, but he's the inspiration. Uh, you know, I mean, it's exactly. what was on Dylan's mind when he wrote it, but isn't expressly about him. And this song can be about anybody to whom you owe a debt and you feel as though uh, you want to be freed from this debt. and uh, Or or somebody you had to deal with and this person is reneging on the deal. And that's, right. so that's kind of what it is. And so I think the, the, the song works great as a plea to Albert Grossman, but it works great if it isn't.
0: Yeah. And I think too, at the time there was a lot of undue pressure on Dylan to come out with material. I know they, he had some kind of contract with the, for the basement tapes where he was, they were trying to get him to produce material for other artists to cover. So I think at the time there was a lot of pressure on him. Maybe Grossman was putting some of that pressure on him. And then you mentioned the, the issue about the contracts. I read too, that On average back then, a manager usually received about 15% commission. But with Grossman and Dylan, he was receiving 20%. Mm. Plus, on top of that, he had co-publishing rights from some of his Whitmark uh, demos from the early 60s. And on top of that, when he... uh, Because he really was the one who introduced Blowing in the Wind to the mainstream public because he had Peter, Paul, and Mary cover it, which... it became a huge commercial success. So he was getting commission off of that as well. So he was essentially, uh, he had four different uh, commissions coming in at the time, uh, specifically for that song, but I'm sure with other Dylan songs too. So I think there was a little animosity between uh, Dylan and Grossman and the fact that, like you said, he, at that point he had become a commercial success without compromising his artistic ability. So at that point, what do you need someone like Albert Grossman for. Yeah. Um, not to say he doesn't need a manager, but he did his part in the beginning to get him where he was. Now, now at this point, he's kind of holding him back with, with the royalty money and, and putting this pressure on him when all he wants to do is lay back in Woodstock and start a family. So I think all that kind of uh, transpired and... Inspired this song, right?
1: And to be fair to to be fair to Grossman uh, or any manager, I mean, the argument could be, well, hey, I helped get you here. Uh, sure. Now that you don't need me anymore, that doesn't give you the right to just abandon me. And to Dylan's credit, in this song, he does see things from the other side. He isn't just saying the landlord is this terrible, rotten person of which I am uh, I, I'm contractually obligated to. He does see things from the other side. You know, he talks about uh, I know you've suffered much. You know, he says right there, but this, you are not so unique. So he is seeing both sides of this, which is, which is a nice rounded view. Again, especially when you've only got three verses, he manages to fit a lot of stuff in this, in these, these,
0: you know, three minutes. Um, No, I'm glad he brought that up because it is, it is sort of a empathetic view with understanding that he's been through suffering. And then even at the end, he shows that he's committed to this uh, landlord or whoever this person may be by saying, I'm not about to move or go anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. My thing is, and what I've always found interesting is the, the final, what I call like the ultimatum that he makes at the end. Um, you know, if you don't underestimate me, I won't underestimate you. Um, this, this line for me is why I don't think it's the, the God theory really works because I don't think someone pursuing, um, you know, theology or religion at that point, or even in trying to have a conversation with God would, would put that kind of uh it's almost like blackmail, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, and, and not to mention why would, if you're real sincere about God, why would you think God would underestimate you? Yeah. I, I think this is, you know, it, it just doesn't, just doesn't make sense. It's more, I think it more applies to Grossman um, mm-hmm. saying, you know, we've been doing this for so long now you know what i'm capable of you know my special gifts as he mentions in the song don't don't underestimate me and and you know things might work out but it's it's such a interesting way of of putting that uh, right at the end there i i found that fascinating yeah, I mean this was also you know, a
1: moment where Dylan was writing that book, Tarantula, which was coming out. And, and I mean the, the, the world was sort of opening up to him and I could see Dylan sort of saying, hey, look, I'm not just like this jukebox that you know, you just constantly work. I mean Dylan was working himself into, into the, the grave at the speed he was going sure. because he had the motorcycle crash. And this was uh, essential to his mental health was sort of this relaxing kind of right. like uh, kind of slow down, And he, obviously he's capable of still creating great work because even in this relaxed atmosphere, he was doing the basement tapes and he made this record. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, he was like not writing great songs anymore. He was just doing it at a different pace that maybe the record company wasn't comfortable with. Um, there is one story I, I want to tell about Albert Grossman, and I don't know what other chance I'll have to tell it, which is funny. And they mentioned this on the uh, No Direction Home documentary. And they talk about, like, as a, as an indication of how much of a marketer uh, Grossman was, how, how aware he was of your brand long before that was a thing. And uh, I forget who tells the story of the movie, but it's somebody who was in the folk scene, and they were friends with uh, Mary Travers from The Mary of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And she had just gone to Florida for a vacation. And she, she was back in New York, and the guy said, well, Mary you went, where have you been? And she goes, oh, I was in Florida. I was in Florida for a couple of weeks. And he's like, well, didn't you get any sun? Like, you don't look like you've <laughs> seen any sun. And he says, she says, well, Albert told me that my image is better of, uh, my image works better as kind of the pale young folk girl. So even though I was in Florida, Albert told me to stay inside the whole time.
0: Yeah. I and remember the, that. Yeah, it was... The
1: guy was horrified that it was so contrived and phony, you know, that he was like, Oh, man, what's going on here? And that was an indication to him that Albert Grossman was kind of like not so much worried about the authenticity as it was the brand. And that was a little troubling. Now, Dylan and Grossman's relationship continued legally all the way into the 1980s. Uh, when it was finally settled in court, where uh, some judge decided that Dylan owed Albert Grossman something like a million or two million dollars for all the royalties for all the song publishing, Grossman never saw the money. He died on a plane flight on the way back from oh, London, England right. in like 1987. So is that a heart uh, attack? Which is, which is such a horrifying... Yeah. Game.
0: it's With it, with Albert Grossman, too, It's he was very intimidating, but not in the sense of like a colonel tom parker figure right
1: Right. he was
0: more of he would and i've I've read this about him too he would kind of just sit there and be quiet and just stare at you and it would cause you to it would cause a lot of these uh promoters to get nervous and just start talking and then all of a sudden give him everything he wants because (laughs) it's it's this quiet intimidating presence that he has um and i think the issue about controlling like with with peter paul and mary when he wanted to control the way they looked to kind of give that image of a, um, you know, I don't know what the, the word would be, the sort of this like angelic uh, image of this folk group. I think with Dylan, he wanted to be in control of his own destiny, and sure, I don't think sure. Albert ever tried anything like that with him because it wouldn't have gotten very far. But, yeah, I mean, um, you, know,
1: you know how much Dylan worshipped Elvis, and I, I'm sure everyone was f- familiar with the Colonel Tom Parker-Elvis relationship, and in a lot of ways, Colonel Tom Parker worked Elvis into the grave.
0: Exactly. Uh, and
1: you could see Dylan saying I don't I don't want that for myself. So he found a way to divest himself from Albert Grossman, you know. And it's again, we don't want to keep limiting it to being Albert Grossman because again, the song is about any any bondage that you have to somebody. I mean, my favorite line in the song is anyone can fill his life up with things he can see but just cannot touch. I was I mean, going to ask
0: you about that. <laughs> I mean, that's an
1: amazing line, the idea that you can of course, you know, fill your life up with all sorts of stuff. Uh, whether it be physical or whatever, but it doesn't, mm-hmm. none of it
0: matters. It doesn't make you happy. Right. Uh, you and, think I, and I think Dylan's always been, been that way. He's never been of the material mind. He's always searching for some, some level of truth. Uh, and it goes beyond material objects. Obviously I think that, that uh, middle part there, that stanza, stanza is about materialism, but I wanted to ask you, because I've actually interpreted that line two different ways. And I'm wondering if you think it's about um, Dylan not being able to be around possessions because he works too hard, um, so he's not able to enjoy them, he's only able to see them because of the life he's chosen, or do you think it's sort of Dylan sneering at this landlord because not everyone in in this world can, can touch things in their life, they can only see them, but he... He can, and they you know they sort of lack what he possesses, which is fame and money. I've always wondered what which way he was going with that
1: hmm uh, I, I tend to take it more towards the latter just because I think about some of the other themes that are on John Wesley Harding. There's a lot of kind of very simple. Um, like it, uh, not for lack of a better term, like advice, like, you know, simple mm-hmm. hominy homonyms or whatever you call it, where uh, homilies, I'm sorry, I can't believe I just said that homilies where I mean, on another song, there's the whole thing about don't go, don't go mistaking paradise for that home across the road. It's right. It's Dylan in the guise of a kind of gentle preacher. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of biblical references throughout this record. And to me, that that's a lot of what this is, is kind of uh, Dylan as a separate figure, standing back and trying to giving advice to the poor people that uh, are besieged on the on, on the planet. I mean, there's a lot of people in this in this record on trial, uh, literally. And there's drifters mm-hmm. escape as someone is on trial, and uh, and there's the line in All along the watchtower about uh, people not knowing what things are worth. There's right. a, l- a lot of that going on. So that's how I took it as just sort of like. You know, we're in this, America's in this hard-charging, it's, you know, 1967, it's still relatively kind of a post-war, although we're, the Vietnam is, of course, happening at that point, but it's still, you know, Dylan grew up post-World War Two, and you're still in that kind of American consumerism sort of thing of, like, you want the biggest car and the biggest house and the biggest this, um, apparently around this time. Uh, when Dylan bought a mansion, it had 31 rooms, and he said to somebody, "I just bought a house with 31 rooms. Can you imagine it? Like he just, you know, like what? Is, why do I even need a house with 31 rooms yeah. in it? So yeah, that's yeah. how I always took it. Of just like be careful that thinking that your life's value it can be equated by lots of stuff." Mm -hmm. And I'm sure Dylan had lots of stuff. You know, we all know about his house in Malibu. And he still does. And he still does. His house in Malibu. I mean, clearly, whatever possessions populate Dylan's giant compound in Malibu, they don't hold a lot of sway for him because he's never home. You know, he's always out on the road. So clearly, all of that stuff that he has doesn't mean a whole lot.
0: And that's why – and that's what brought that up because he says anyone can have things that they can see. You know, for Dylan, he's constantly – he's working – all the time. He's probably never or hardly ever home. Um, so he has all these things, but they're not, uh, palpable. They're, they're distant from him. So it's like, what's the point of working yourself crazy to accumulate all this stuff that you're never going to be able to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe it's more abstract than that. And it's really, uh, about, you know, some kind of spiritual, uh, you know, reference, it was definitely,
1: all that stuff was definitely on Dylan's mind at the time. I do want to mention, I, I talked about the musicians, and uh, Charlie McCoy plays bass on this. And McCoy was, I, I don't know why Dylan didn't maybe continue on with him because he clearly seemed to have, uh, you know, him and McCoy were simpatico in a lot of ways. I mean, it's Charlie McCoy playing that famous guitar on Desolation Row, which is like, is genius, brilliant. genius, brilliant. Yeah, right. I mean, just brilliant. So McCoy was a really sympathetic a backing musician for Dylan, and he does great work here. And I was doing a little more research on the song. And in terms of the order by which these songs were written, uh, the final two songs on John Wesley Harding are distinctly meant to be separate from the rest of the album because they are country songs. I'll Be Your Baby Tonight and Down Along the Cove. And they are sort of meant to be very separate from the other songs on this record. This song, Dear Landlord, is the last song – written for John Wesley Harding outside of those two country songs and so if you want to you could view this as like this is sort of the last song Dylan wrote before he completely changed his persona and became the country rock guy which would be unveiled on Nashville Skyline so in some ways Dear Landlord is sort of you know he consciously put a period at the end of that sentence because there was a very a, very much a new Dylan after this uh, at that point so this is this is where that song figures into his, his history
0: yeah, that that's interesting, too, because I feel like those last two songs have a they're kind of lighthearted in a way. Yeah, and they're yep. a, a rea- very smooth as opposed to and not to say that the the other songs on the album aren't smooth. But there's for me and I've I've read this, too, about him at the time. He was he constantly had a Bible with him. Yep. And I'm not I'm not trying to say that every song uh, before those last two are all about. Uh, the Bible or the New Testament or have, you know, spiritual undertones, whatever, but it it needs to be noted because there are, there are definitely references in there that, uh, that allude to the Bible. And, um, and then you get these last two songs, which really have nothing to do with it. They're just kind of lighthearted. And then I'll be your baby tonight, more of a slow love song, but um, yeah, no, that's, it's, you're entirely right. That's almost, It's almost like a separate album from mm-hmm. those two songs.
1: Yeah, it's a preview of the next album, which is not something right. Dylan typically did. So yeah, Dear Landlord in, in some ways is sort of the end of bob dylan's sort of classic 60s period It's just sort of amazing to think now uh, concert wise uh it, it was never played live until 1992 yeah, so it yeah, said yeah it sat and sat dormant for 25 years it's been played six times that's it from 1992 to 2003 and actually if you go to youtube and you put in bob dylan dear landlord uh, there is a video of him playing it live somewhere in England, and it's a, it's a pretty good version. I like it a lot. It must have been fun for him to dig this out, to, to you know, play a song that not hardly anybody's ever uh, heard a concert. I and mean, he said, why? It would only be played six times in the course of a decade and then never again. Who knows? I know it goes on with Bob. It's a shame because I'd love to hear it. I think it's a terrific song, and um, it would be fun to hear just because it's so unusual.
0: Yeah, I don't know how he selects. I know he has (laughs) over 500 songs or however many he has to select from. But some he just, I don't know if he, and he said too that he can't relate to a lot of these songs anymore. Mm. Uh, Some of them still hold up and some of them he plays just because he probably feels he has to because there's a paying audience there and you got to throw in at least a few crowd pleasers. But uh, something like Dear Landlord, I can see why maybe he, wouldn't play that it's not the most um uplifting song and it's almost uh a thematic song that went along with this album it kind of i don't see why based on the concerts i've been to why he would play this particular song i wish he would because i i love the way he sings this song i think his his vocal ability on this song is understated and uh underappreciated
1: yeah, it's terrific. He say does a great job for again for for three minutes. You know, all these songs are all like two minutes and change, three minutes. He really packs a lot into them. As you as you said at the top of the show, there's no no holes. You know, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. There's no extra line. I mean, he really boiled the boiled the language down to its bare essentials, and it's in in a in a great album in a masterpiece of an album. Uh, I mean this, this album doesn't get mentioned the way the other three do. A lot of people say Bring it All Back Home and Highway Sixty One and Blonde and Blonde are sort of the three masterpieces and they are, but I would put John Wesley Harding in that group. It's just of a different flavor. You know, it's just of a very different kind of stripe. But it's it's a great song on a great album. You know, it's yeah. really true. And, and
0: this one doesn't have the uh the harrowing or the don- the uh ominous the harmonica tones um yeah. alongside of it. It really is just Bob, the piano. On piano, uh, the drums, a bass yeah, uh, in that, there as well. Bass, yeah. but it's it's it almost it's almost like a care, sort of a carefree melody. It's um, definitely not as ominous as uh, all Along the watchtower. I mean, when that starts, you know something something's yes. going on and something's <laughs> yeah. about to happen. This one is a little more laid back, but at the same time, Dylan he, he has a lot to say in this, and he packs a lot into just three. Three stanzas
1: Stanzas. Yeah And we all have Somebody in our life Who's our landlord In one way or the other So who can't relate to that You gotta
0: serve somebody Right
1: (laughs) (laughs) There you go That's a perfect Perfect place to end it We'll we'll preview for another Episode sometime So uh, Anyway Well Pete Thank you uh, so much For coming on man. I appreciate it I've said before On the show I love it when people Contact me And and obviously, when they say nice things about the show, I love that. But when, especially people writing and and saying, "Hey, I'm, I'm a Dylan fan too. I love to be on the show. I absolutely love that." So, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate you allowing me to be on. I mean, I, you never know when you submit these if someone's actually going to respond or not. But I obviously appreciate what you're doing. I I love spreading the uh, the music and the lyrics of Dylan to people that might not know about him because. It was just you know, 10 short years ago that I didn't even know about them or you know, I hadn't heard of them at the time that I right. could remember. And uh, I appreciate what you're doing. It's a great podcast, and uh, I wish you luck, and hopefully I can be on again in the future.
1: Absolutely. Again, well, thank you, Pete. And, of course, everybody, if you want to find back episodes of the show, go to our website, which is FireAndWaterPodcast.com, and click the Shows tab, and you'll see all the episodes for Pod Dylan. And we always talk about Bob over on Twitter, which is at Pod underscore Dylan. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. a price on my soul My burden is heavy My dreams are beyond Hope you receive it well, depending on the way you feel that you live.